أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع ذنوبنا وطبيب نفوسنا أبي القاسم المصطفى محمد اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وعجل فرجهم وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين واللعنة الدائم على أعدائهم أجمعين for the love of our beloved Prophet and his beloved progeny, please recite a second loud salawat. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. For the hastening in the return of our beloved 12th Imam, a third final loud salawat. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. I hope everyone is doing well, inshallah. And tonight we will continue with the tafsir of suratul uh, or begin actually with the tafsir of suratul mursalat the new surah that we will be discussing inshallah the surah of uh, al mursalat is the 77th surah of the quran and it consists of 50 verses and it is a Mecca surah, meaning that the verses of the surah were revealed in the city of mecca the first portion or the first phase of the prophet's mission and when you take a look at the verses that this surah contains, the content that it speaks about, the points and the themes that it speaks about, you can very well tell that this is a surah that was revealed in Mecca. As many of us already know, the surahs that were revealed in Mecca, they contain points or content that have to do with the belief system. Usually, they don't go any further than the belief system, the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the belief in the Day of Judgment, and the belief in the Prophet, as a prophet and as a messenger, as a divine messenger. Usually the surahs that were revealed in Mecca have to do mostly with these concepts. And when you look at Islamic history, it's only when the prophet left and migrated to Medina, where many of the rulings that we know of, famously, for example, zakat, mainstream opinion, is that it became wajib in Medina. And many of the other rulings that we know of, dress code, for example, was revealed in Medina, and many of the other issues that we have heard about. So when you look at Suratul Mursalat, it's very clear, very easily you can tell by the content and the main themes that the surah is talking about that this is a surah that was revealed in the city of Mecca. Now before I delve into the main themes of the surah, so we have an overall picture of what this surah is talking about. What, why is this surah even there? What are the main points it's going to touch on? I want to share one or two ahadith about the reward and the effect of reciting Suratul Mursalat. We know that there are multiple ahadith that speak about the reward of reciting different surahs of the Quran. I've mentioned this a number of times. You'll probably hear it from me more and more as we move on. That when it comes to these ahadith, we have to be very careful. These ahadith that we have that speak about the reward of reciting this surah or that surah, the a good number of them from a you know a chain of narrator perspective, from the perspective of whether they have a very a strong isnad as they say, usually they lack in that regard. That's not to say that they're not true. Those two are not the same. We cannot equate these two with one another. But it does say, does tell us that we have to be careful and cautious when we come to these ahadith. And in general, ahadith that we have as it relates to the Qur'an are like that. But specifically when it comes to ahadith that speak about the reward 
of reciting this surah or that surah. And we're talking about not the reward of reciting Qur'an in general, that's something that we all know about across the faiths in Islam, across, across the different madhahib in Islam, you will find that. No, the reward of or the result or the effect of reciting this particular surah or that particular surah, this is where these ahadith, we have to be, uh, we have to be a bit cautious with them. Now, the ahadith that we have with regards to suratul mursalat, uh, there are ahadith, for example, that say that the one who recites Suratul Mursalat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects him while he is in a trip, while he is traveling. Maybe this has to do with Al Mursalat, which we will talk about, which comes from movement, something that's sent one from one point to another. Then in other ahadith, Imam Sadiq narrates, he says, the one who recites Suratul Mursalat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will create a relationship between him and the Prophet on the day of judgment. So there seems to be, and this is a hadith that, uh, you know, Thawab al-A'mal of Shaykh al-Sadugh narrates, so a relatively reliable, uh, you know, source. So there are rewards for this surah in particular, but as we've mentioned always, I don't want to reiterate the whole details that we've gone through before. As we've mentioned before, reciting the surahs of the Qur'an, whether we come across these specific ahadith or we don't, this should not be the main reason why we recite the surahs of the Qur'an. The surahs of the Qur'an we recite because it reminds us of the Day of Judgment. What greater effect than that? And the one who is reminded of the Day of Judgment, this person, his life will be very different from the one who forgets about the Day of Judgment. That itself should be more than enough of a reason for us to be acquainted with the verses of the Qur'an or to have only pretty short actually. It has a number of main themes. If we understand these main themes, then you'll very quickly realize that this is a Mecki surah because the themes, all of them have to do with the belief system. Verse 1 through 15 is going to talk about establishing the idea that the day of judgment is a real thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts out in this surah by swearing by a number of things, which we will discuss. What are those things that he is going to swear by? But when he swears by those things, the final result, the final point that he is trying to prove is that the day of judgment is a real thing. So verse 1 through 15 talks about, number one, establishing the day of judgment, and number two, what's going to happen on this day of judgment? What's going to happen to the stars? What's going to happen you know, to, to the sky? What's going to happen to the mountains? And so on and so forth. That's 1 through 15, which is what we are going to delve into tonight. Then 16 through 28 talks about the creation of the human being and how the earth was prepared for the creation of the human being. Verses 29 to 45 is going to talk about the punishment of the disbelievers. And 46 to 50 is going to talk about the reason why that punishment is there for them. Okay? So if you count, there's four main parts to this surah. There is one main theme, though, that is repeated over and over in Suratul Mursalat. And Suratul Mursalat is, in fact, very much well known for this main theme. There is one verse in Suratul Mursalat that is repeated over and over again, not once, not twice, not three times. It is mentioned ten times. A pattern that you see, for example, in Suratul Rahman. In Suratul Rahman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continuously says, Why is it, O jinn and ins, human beings and jinn, why is it that you deny the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Similarly, here in Suratul Mursalat, there is a verse that comes up over and over again, ten times, 
This verse has been repeated over and over again, and that is Wailun Lil Mukadzibin. Wail is used when you want to deliver bad news, when you want to warn someone. Now, formally, they would translate it as woe, woe to the disbelievers or woe to those who deny the message of God. But essentially, if we wanted to translate it in a way where we could all understand, what it means is that something horrible is going to happen, something terrible is going to happen. Wailun. This is a form of warning, right? A form of showing this person that something terrible is on the way. Ten times in Suratul Mursalat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wailun lil mukathibin, Wailun lil mukathibin, Wailun lil mukathibin, all the way to ten times. Why is it that he says, Woe to those who rejected the message? Mukathib comes from kidh, it means from lying, it comes from lying, yes? It means when you look at someone and you say, This person is a liar. You attribute lying to somebody. In other words, when the Prophet brought his message, there were those who considered him a liar. Instead of saying that this is a divine message, they said, no, he made it up himself. Yes, as the Quran says, Am Do you say that the message of our Prophet is iftira'a? Meaning something he's made up on his own. Ten times Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the one who rejects our message, something terrible is going to happen to him. Now when we get to that verse, which I believe the first time it occurs in Suratul Mursalat is verse number 15. When we get to that, we'll discuss why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts his finger on mukathibin, on those who deny his message. Just a, a sneak peek into that discussion. There are many sins that someone can commit. Yes? There are, for example, I can, I can rip somebody off, for example... Yes, I can sell them something but not give them what exactly I'm selling them. Okay, I'm ripping them off. Uh, that's one sin, for example. I can bother another human being. That's another sin. I cannot pray. I cannot fast. These are all sins. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts his hand ten times on this group who rejects the message of the Prophet. What role does rejecting the message of the Prophet play in the fate that the human being has, in terms of whether he's going to end up in heaven or in hellfire. That is a very, very important discussion, one that is fundamental to understanding how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judges on the day of judgment altogether. We usually think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only judges based on deeds, whereas belief is also a major criteria, or major criterion, I should say, and we're going to talk about that. Why is it that 10 times? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes back to this. Okay, let's start out from the beginning of Suratul Mursalat. He starts out like this, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wal-mursalati urfa. And we swear by those things that are sent one after another continuously. There is discussion here as to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is swearing by in these first five or six surah verses of Suratul Mursalat. We're going to go with the opinion of Allama Tabatabai, which is that he is swearing by the different types of angels that he has created. And there's reasoning why he believes in this. Okay, there's a reason why he takes this opinion. The other opinion is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is swearing by wind. But we'll go with the first opinion, which is the opinion of Allama Tabatabai. Wal mursalati urfa, and we swear by those angels that come quickly and one after another, they come continuously. And we swear by those angels that come very fast. Asf means a movement that is very quick. So those that, the angels that come one after another, they come continuously. They come very quickly. 
And the ones who come and bring the book of deeds to the different servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَالْفَارِقَاتِ فَرْقَ And they take these book of deeds and they open them. فَرْقَ فُرْقَان means when you separate something. When they open these books of deeds. فَالْمُلْقِيَاتِ ذِكْرَ Those angels that bring down the wahy. Those angels that bring down the dhikr. What is the dhikr? The dhikr is the wahy, the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. عُذْرًا أَوْ نُذْرًا for some, they bring down this revelation in order to give them the message so that they hear the message. For some of them, nudra, to bring down warning to them. Depending on what type of person they are. If they're a good person, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings down udra to them. He brings down the message to them so that they hear the message. Nudra, they do indar to them. They do give them warning of what's about to happen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts out the surah swearing in reality, five times. You'll find six verses, yes, but the last verse is not really a sw it's not another qasam. It's just the continuation of al-mulqiyati dhikra. Five times, he is going to swear by his angels. And these angels, each one of them has their own capabilities. They have their own roles that they are supposed to play. And we touched on this a little bit before and we'll talk about it more that the angels that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created is a whole world for itself. It's a world that we don't know much about. The Quran every now and then will allude to it just so that we understand the magnificence of this creation, how magnificent it is. But it won't give us exactly, you know, a, 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 a different category, a list of different categories of all of these angels. Here and there, the Qur'an will talk about it. That yes, we have angels that are in charge of this, we have angels that are in charge of that. Here we went through a number of different categories, maybe four or five different categories of angels. In Surah Al-Nazirat, we also read, وَالنَّازِعَاتِ غَرْغَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by those angels who come and they take the soul of the wrongdoer and they do نَازِعَاتِ غَرْغَ They pull his soul away. Yes? Forcefully. Why? Because he was a wrongdoer. This process is difficult for him. And those angels that come and they very happily and with ease take the soul of a good person. Because he's a good person, the soul leaves the body very easily. And he swears by those angels that move very quickly. They seek to move ahead of one another when they want to act upon the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَالْمُدَبِّرَاتِ amra, And those angels that administer the different tasks that relate to this world. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving us an idea a little bit about all of these different types of angels. Then when you go to hadith, you understand that these angels, they do almost everything around us. The things that happen for us normally then we understand that no, each of these tasks, in fact, is a task of an angel or a group of angels that come and take care of this task. Yes? So that's why we read in this, in this khutbah of Ali ibn Abi Talib that we sort of touched on in one of our previous uh, talks that he speaks about the different angels that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. He says some of them he has created, they stand up and they worship him day and night. That's the only role that they play. And some of them do sajda and they never do rukur. They are to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only in the form of rukur. And then he says, and then there are those, they're constantly in rukur and they never get up. 
And they never get tired. This is the role for which they were created. Then he continues, he says, And some of them, Some of these angels are in charge of bringing the divine message from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his prophets. And then another group is there when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a decision about this world. Something is supposed to happen in this world. They come and they make it happen. And some of them protect the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All sorts of angels out there. All, all different types of categories of angels out there. The angels that you have in heaven, that they take care of the different things that happen in heaven. Right? The Quran says when people enter into heaven, they are told, Salamun alaykum bima sabartum. There are different things that they hear. There are different services that are provided. These are all done for the most part by angels. And then, of course, Ali ibn Abi Talib doesn't mention here in his khutbah, but the hellfire, right? The Quran says that we have 19 angels. They are in charge of hellfire and they, they, they take care of the punishment of hellfire. It's another category. Wa minhuma. And this really stretches your imagination. And then there are those of them that are so big that their feet are on earth. And their necks goes further beyond the highest heaven. This is Ali ibn Abi Talib describing things to us that we don't understand. But he's giving you an idea that these angels, they come in all forms and shapes. So many different roles that they play. And of course, we don't see them. But the reality is, every little thing that you do, there are angels involved in it. And of course, this is a, this is a topic for you know, a separate occasion, a separate time. Every little deed that I do, if I do something good, there's someone that's writing it down. The someone that's writing it down, meaning an angel. The angel that's writing it down, there's another one that's copying up off of him. These are deeper discussions that we'll leave for another time. But the Quran says, We were copying what you were doing because there's multiple books of deeds that every human being has. And then there's one that takes us up. And then there's one that you know comes back with the result of it. There's all these different things that we hear about. In the world that we live in, the life that we live in, we don't see anything changing around us. I see myself having a bad thought in my mind or committing a sin. In my world, it seems as though nothing happened. In reality, thousands of angels are involved in my every day to every, every moment of my day-to-day -day life. And this is the perspective that the Quran is giving to us. There is so much happening around us that as human beings, we don't realize. And this is the Quran giving us what we would call this paradigm shift. That yes, you look at your life in this way, you look at you know, the world that you live in in this way, the Quran gives you a different worldview. No, there's so much happening around you. If you understood how much is happening around you, you would be more careful of your deeds. So he swears by these angels. And of course we know when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by something, he's swearing by something important. When you swear, you never swear by something that doesn't hold value. You will swear by something that is important, something that's magnificent, something that is great. Now, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create all of these angels? Yes? Couldn't he have done it with less angels? Couldn't he have done it without any angels? There is discussion here, but one of the reasons why 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have possibly done this is to show us how magnificent his creation is. That he can create as he likes, as he wishes. Yazidu fil khalq ma yasha, as we read in the beginning of Surah Al Fatir. He creates angels. He creates angels that have wings, some of them two wings, some of them three wings, some of them four rings. Yes? He creates all sorts of angels, and then he says at the end, Yazidu fil khalq ma yasha. And he creates as he wishes. So one reason could be to open the eye of the human being to the power of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's one reason. Another reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, another philosophy that comes out of this, another result that comes out of this, is that when the human being learns of these thousands upon thousands upon millions of angels, and he sees the way they obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the way they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a lesson for the human being. The human being, because the only thing he sees in this world is himself. Yes, we see plants, we see animals, but I mean, their intellect is nothing compared to us, yes? And this is something that we, even, even from an Islamic perspective, we agree to. From an Islamic perspective, the intellectual capabilities of the human being is beyond other things. Yes, some have even said, beyond even the power and the capability that the jinn has, right? The intellectual capability. We see this and we walk away with our own, you know, selfish worldview that yes, we're the most important thing in this world. And from a certain perspective, that is true. But we walk away thinking we're so smart, we're so genius, we have been able to conquer every other species that is out there, which is very true. That's what we see around us, yes? You capture a bee once, you capture him twice, you do it for a thousandth time, what happens? He's still going to make his honey and you're still going to capture him you're still going to take away his honey, right? Because it's a bee. But the human being, you trick him once, twice, by the tenth time, he's different. By the tenth time, his intellectual capabilities are going to stop him from doing the same thing. You can't trick him a million times unless, unless he doesn't have an intellect. Yes? Which is kind of what shaitan does with, uh, with us, by the way. Us as human beings, we look around us, we have conquered every species on earth. And then we think that we are the most powerful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us, says, listen, you have this power. But listen, I have angels who can do all of this and they worship me every second. Yes? They listen to me. They obey me. Some of them, yarka'oon, la yantasibun. They're constantly in ruku'ur. Minhum sujudun la Some of them are always in sajda. And here you are, the human being. I ask you to do sajda for five minutes a day and you won't do it. I ask you to do, to do rukur in 17 rak'ats of salat on a daily basis and you won't do it. This is a lesson for the human being. That he understands everything in the heavens and the earth, including the angels, are worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And yet the human being with the stubbornness that it has, he doesn't want to do it. This is another reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might have created the angels. There's different reasons that can be uh, you know, presented as why he created these angels. Okay, But nonetheless, these angels are there. It's important for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, otherwise he would not be swearing by them. Not just in this surah, in other surahs of the Quran he has sworn by them as well. Okay, then he moves on. Okay, all of this to say what? You swear to prove a point. What is the point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to you know, prove with all of this? Verse number 7. 
We swore by this angel, that angel, all of these different things to say that happens in the Qur'an. The qasam that happens in the Qur'an, it's not a swearing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does to prove a point. In fact, in the midst of what he's swearing by is the proof for the point that he is swearing for. One more time. It's not that he's just swearing to prove a point. He is swearing, but in the midst of his swearing, he swears by certain things that contain the proof of this point. In the swearing that he's doing lies that proof if you pay attention. So how does this apply here? Walmursalati Urfa. He swears by those angels that are sent one after another. They come quickly. They do all of these different things. All of the different things that happen in this world, they're done by these angels. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, this world that you see, with all of its functions, someone is running this show. Yes, these angels are doing all of these things, but there's someone running this show. So, This world, with all of the details that it has, someone is running it, of course there has to be a final destination for it. There is a proof in this swearing, in this qasam of the Qur'an. He's not just swearing to prove his point. No, the things that he's swearing by contain the reason to prove his point as well, and he's swearing at the same time. He's using both methods. In other verses of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَوَرَبِّ السَّمَاءِ وَالْأَرْضِ إِنَّهُ لَحَقٌ I swear by the nurturer of the heavens and the earth, it is true what we are telling you. Where is the proof for this, Ya Allah? The nurturer of the heavens and the earth. You don't see the heavens and the earth? Someone is nurturing them? You don't see anyone running this show? You see someone running this show. Therefore, the proof lies in the qasam itself. So it's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sitting there only swearing to prove his point. No, anyone can do that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is swearing and in the midst of what he is swearing by lies the proof for the point that he is swearing for. Okay, hopefully that point has registered with us. So he swears by all of these things to say, Those things that you have heard, they will definitely happen. So what is this thing that is definitely going to happen? Of course it's referring to the day of judgment. So from verse 8 onwards, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to start to talk about what happens on that day. What's going to take place on that day. And as we go through these descriptions of the Qur'an, there is one point that we have to remember. The Qur'an does not describe the day of judgment only in Suratul Mursalat. Of course the Qur'an describes the day of judgment on multiple occasions, yes? Some have said a third, a fourth of the Qur'an has to do with the day of judgment. Okay. When the Qur'an describes the Day of Judgment, one of the points that we always have to remember is does the Qur'an contradict itself from one time to another time? When you describe an event, if this is a truthful event, if you were to describe it over and over again, the description that you give is going to be the same because it's, it's based on the truth. It's something that you're seeing with your own eyes or you saw with your own eyes. So if they ask you five times, you're going to give them the same story. Yes? But if it's something you made up by the second or third time, you're going to forget about the details you gave the last time. 
The Quran describes the day of judgment in different surahs of this book. But then when you bring all of it together, you find that they're very much compatible with one another. And this is one of the reasons why the Quran is a miracle, brothers and sisters. Because we know historically, there's no doubt about this. Historically, you go to any historian, they will not be able to dispute this, that the Quran was not revealed all at once. The Quran was revealed over 23 years. How is it that this book that was revealed over 23 years, the description that's given in year two is compatible with the description that's given in year five, in year 10, 15, 20, 23. This is the Quran that's like this. When you look at other books, no, the contradictions are too obvious. When the Quran describes the Day of Judgment, you can tell this is a description that's coming from truth. Why? Because it describes the Day of Judgment in multiple different surahs of it, but the descriptions are compatible with one another. And as we go through these verses, we will demonstrate that. That every line that the Quran mentions about the Day of Judgment, he has described with different wording somewhere else, but that wording points to the same meaning. It's a very difficult thing to do, by the way. To use different wording to describe an event, but in a way that does not contradict the reality of that event. It goes back to the same meaning. So keep that in mind. You take a look at any other book that's written over 20, 25 years. By the way, by the time you're done, you will find multiple contradictions in it. That's why the Quran says that if this book was not the words, uh, if it was the words of a human being, they would have found so many contradictions in it. But you don't see that in the verses of the Quran. This is one, you know, we say the Qur'an is a miracle. We tell our children the Qur'an is a miracle. We never really demonstrate it to them. This is one way to demonstrate how the Qur'an is a miracle, that it doesn't contradict itself. So what is this description that the Qur'an is giving? On that day when the stars, they, are, they go dark. Where else does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speak about this? In other verses of the Qur'an, He says, وَإِذَا النُّجُومٌ كَدَرَتْ when they become kadir, yes? What does that mean? That means they lose their light. These are different surahs. Some of these surahs are chapters apart from one another. But yet you find that description aligns with one another. Here he says, Tomisat. There he says, in kadarat. Okay, you move on. So the first thing is that the stars, they go dark. Wa'idha sama'u furijat. When there is a farj, where there's a crack in the, in the skies, right? The, the skies crack open. What does that mean? We don't necessarily understand. But then where does the Qur'an describe the same event, but in a way that's compatible with what, with what he's saying here in Surah Al-Mursalat? He says, إِذَا un shakat In Suratul Al-Inshiqaq. إِذَا un shakat When there is a shaqa in the skies. Different wordings, but 100% compatible with one another. This is, this is not the work of a human being. You can't do this. Not over 23 years. Yes, if you came up with the book all, all at once, then you can check everything, you know. You can, you can come up with the same description and then put it in different parts of the book. But over 23 years, in the midst of battle, in the midst of hijrah travel, in the midst of marriage, in the midst of divorce, these are the events of the life of the Prophet, yes? 
in the midst of dealing with battles and in wars from different places, in the midst of writing letters, in the midst of governing a government in Medina, these verses were revealed. And yet you find they match with one another so beautifully. Number two, the, the, when the skies, they crack open. We also have this in Surah Al-Rahman, by the way. Yes, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when the skies, they crack open on that day, they will look like wardatan kaddihan. They will look like a red rose. What does that mean? What is it referring to? We don't know. All we know is that the Quran is giving us descriptions that are completely compatible with one another. Then we move on. And when the mountains, they are leveled, they are removed. And where else does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speak about this? In Surah Al-A'raf. Forgive me, this is Surah Taha. When they ask you about the mountains, tell them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to level them. He's going to remove them. They're not even going to be there. Okay, again, in this case, the same wording. But you see, these surahs are very much apart from one another. Surah Taha is where? Surah Mursalat is where? Now, of course, they were both revealed in Mecca because we know that the order that the surahs of the Quran have in the Quran, this was not given by the Prophet, the order of the surahs. No, this was the Ashab of the Prophet afterwards. They came up with this order. And it actually follows a particular trajectory. It begins, of course, with Surah Fatihatul Kitab and then with the bigger surahs and then you know, mid-side surahs until you come to the last juz with the smallest of surahs, yes? But nonetheless, these surahs were revealed at different times. And yet you find the same wording there. All by a person who was illiterate, by the way. Then number 11, And when the messengers are given their own time, they're given time for what? They are given time to be asked, what did your people do? You were the proof that we sent to the people. They were supposed to follow you. Now we're going to ask you. You're going to be given your time. You're going to be summoned to be asked. And where else does the Quran say this? In multiple surahs. He says, We will bring them. We will ask the prophets and we will ask those that we sent the prophets to. And he also says, When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gathers the prophets on that day and he asks them, what did the people respond to you? Amongst those questions, by the way, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks, is this question addressed to Isa alayhi salam? Ya Isa, a'anta qulta linnas ittakhidhuni wa ummiya ilahayna min dunillah? Was it the words of you? Did you ever say to the people that they are supposed to take you as a god? Was, was it you who told them that they're supposed to worship you? And Isa alayhi salam responds with a no. So there's, there's a time where these messengers are brought and they are asked. When will they be given that time? They'll be given that time on the day when good and bad is separated from one another. And then he says, And how would you know what Yamul Fasl is? This is the Prophet, so let alone us. He says, you don't know what this day is going to be like. You don't know how carefully we're going to separate things from one another. Yes? 
we're going to separate things in such a way the good and the bad, they're all going to be there and they're all going to be separated that when the book of deeds is given to people, they say, kitab. They say, what's going on in this book? It's taken into account everything that I've done. You don't understand what that day is going to be like. That day is going to be such that in this world, you had a good thought in your mind. You made a good intention. It's going to show up in your book of deeds. You had a bad intention and you acted upon it. It's going to show up even though no one else knew about it. Even though you might have forgotten about it. Sometimes you do something wrong, you forget about it. Life goes on. There's no one to come and take you to court for it, yes, in this world. You forget about it. It shows up on that day. That's why Luqman told his son. He said, Ya Bunaya, whatever you do, my dear son, on that, on that day, Ya'ti Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring it up. He'll, he'll show it to you. How would you know what that day is like where we separate good and bad from one another? How careful and how delicate and how precise we're going to be in this separation. Then he moves on to that verse that I had told you we're going to reach at the very beginning of the discussion. This day where good and bad are separated so clearly from one another... Then he says, but there's one group who's seriously in trouble. The ones who denied the message, they are in serious trouble. Why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about mukaddibin, the one who doesn't have the right belief system, who knowingly denies the truth? Why is it that this is so important in his eyes? When we talk about the worst things that you can possibly do, what would come to our mind, for example, is stealing, for example, lying, for example, God forbid, murdering another person. These are, of course, you know, amongst the worst of deeds, and the Quran actually speaks of these as well. But why is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wailun yawmaidin lil The ones who denied our messages, they are in trouble ten times, he says it. What's going on here? And in fact, Shaytan, what was his sin, by the way? Did he kill? Did he steal? Did he lie? Did he backbite? Or was there something else that he did that has to do with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to in these verses, that we will leave inshallah for our next session and we'll delve into that. What made shaitan so evil anyways? I mean, shaitan didn't steal anything from anyone. Yes, he didn't backbite or he, you know, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't sitting there and you know, lying about anything. So what, what happened to shaitan? What made shaitan the most evil creature that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ever created? What made him that way? We have to ask that question and that will lead us to why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this verse 10 times in Suratul Mursalat. Thank you dear brothers and sisters for tuning into another episode of the Tafsir Treasures podcast. I hope that this episode was another step for all of us to coming closer to having a deeper understanding of the Qur'an and the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you would like to stay updated on the courses, the presentations, or the other podcasts that Mizan Institute is offering, you can always follow us on the major social media platforms on Facebook, on Instagram, or Twitter. Or you can always refer to Mizan Institute's website, which is MizanInstitute.org. Finally, if there is any feedback, feel free to leave a review for the podcast or you can always message us directly on any of these platforms. 
so that we can benefit from your feedback for future projects, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.